This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Jonah chapter 3. If you've uh, not been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been doing a four-week series in the book of Jonah, which is probably one of my favourite Old Testament narratives. And Jonah starts with Uh, Like most of the books of the prophets do, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amity. God said, arise and cry out against the Ninevites because their wickedness has arisen before me. And Jonah arose and instead of walking the 500 kilometers to Nineveh, he jumps on a ship and heads a month journey, like months and months journey in the opposite direction towards Tarshish, which at the time was the edge of the known world. Like Jonah is literally legging it from God as far as he could possibly get. And we realize the humor of that, someone trying to escape from the presence of the all-present, ever-present, all-knowing, all-seeing God. And here is the holy man, the prophet of God, trying to run from God. And we see this story of Jonah. It's quite humorous. Everything in this book is extra big. The city is large. The ship is large. The fish, the fish is large. The repentance is like over the top, as we'll see here in chapter 3. And Jonah, the prophet of God, is on a boat with a bunch of pagan sailors. And God sends this giant storm against them. And they all begin to cry out to their gods. Meanwhile, Jonah is asleep below the deck. And the captain says to him, with the words of God, he says, Arise and call out. The very words, the very words that God had said to Jonah, this pagan captain says to Jonah, Arise and cry out to your God. And Jonah gets up. He doesn't pray. He doesn't petition. He doesn't ask God on behalf of the the, the sailors whom he is responsible for. He simply says, with a a bit of a brush of nationalistic pride, I am a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh. And our question is, do you really worship Yahweh, Jonah? What does worship look like for you if you are running from your God? And anyway, they cast lots. They find out that Jonah is the one responsible. They begin to throw everything overboard, including the rum, which is devastating for pirates, I mean sailors. And... um, and Jonah says, look, if you throw me overboard, the sea, the, the storm will subside. They throw him overboard. And in the middle of the Mediterranean, somewhere below Turkey, we, our best guess is Jonah begins to sink to a watery grave. And in God's mercy, God sends a giant fish, maybe a whale, but not a whale. We're not really told. Just a giant fish, a big fish, like everything else in this book is big. And this giant fish comes and swallows Jonah up. And he spends three days in the belly of the fish. And he repents kind of in the belly of that fish and thanks God for his mercy and then that fish spits Jonah out onto dry land and we pick up the story in Jonah chapter 3. Now you've got to remember um, we we don't really know all of the details of the book of Jonah. We don't know the geography. We don't really 100% know where Nineveh is. We kind of have a, a good guess but chances are This ship, as it was heading towards Tarshish, was somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. If Jonah sank there and wherever the whale or the fish spat him out, he's still got a long walk to go. Like Nineveh is not a coastal city. It's inland, perhaps 800 kilometers. It would be like walking from Sydney to the Queensland border. That potentially, that's how far Jonah has to go, right? So there's, this is like potentially months of commuting for Jonah. There's no there's no regional express. There's no, you know, Jetstar with, you know, gold, you know, there's none of that. Jonah walks by foot, perhaps, you know, donkey or, or horse if he's lucky. This is a long journey, journey for Jonah to contemplate what God is 
doing. And it would have been quite reasonable, were, were it not, for God to simply just hit the reset, find a more willing prophet, start again. I mean, God was very clear. He said, here is where you're to go. Here is why you're to go. Here is what you are to say. Like Jonah, God was not ambiguous. Jonah was clearly disobedient. So you would forgive God for saying, you know what, Jonah? You can drown at the bottom of the ocean. I'm going to raise up a more willing prophet. And yet, we get to Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Say it with me. A second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. That word that Jonah received in all the way back in chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, in those words, there is so much theology captured in the words a second time because there it speaks of the patience and gentleness and love of God. The grace of God right there is captured in those words a second time. God is patient with Jonah. He is full of mercy towards Jonah and he gives Jonah a second chance. God gives Jonah a second chance. The message of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, what is the message? What is the message that God has given Jonah? Now, to be fair, we actually don't know. But what we do know is that all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, it was a message of judgment. Because God had said to Jonah, the, the wickedness of the Ninevites has, I've noticed it, it's risen up before me. Therefore, go and preach against that city. It was a message of judgment. Go and preach against it. And here in chapter 3, verse 1, as the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, there is a very subtle change to the mission that God has given Jonah. Because he says here, and, and in the original language, it's literally the word goes from E-L to A-L. And he says, instead of preach against it, he says, go proclaim to it. There is a slight change in assignment here for Jonah. And it's a little hint ahead of time about what God is about to do in that city. And so as the message of the Lord comes to Jonah, how many times? A second time, Jonah does what? He obeys. He gets up and he obeys. Have a look at what it says in verse 28. Jonah heads to the city. Now Nineveh was a very large city. You just got to remember, everything in the book is very large, very big. Right? Because remember what, what this genre of Jonah is trying to do is it's trying to make a caricature out of Jonah. It's trying to poke fun at a nationalistic prophet of the Lord who's disobedient, preaches judgy, all this kind of stuff. Right, So the, the city is very large and it took three days to go through it. Now chances are 120,000 people in, you know, by 21st century standards, a small country town. It's like Tamworth. I don't even know what the population of Tamworth is. But so what, what is, chances are Jonah had to walk around the whole city. Not, not that it took three days to like circumnavigate the city, but he's walking around all of the places, literally crying out to the city. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and he starts preaching. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
throne. That's an eight-word sermon in the English, at least in the, in the original, in the Hebrew. It's only five words. Five words. Now, some of you here this morning are thinking, I wish Matt would preach a five-word sermon. Just get down to morning tea. Worship began morning tea. That would be great. A five-word sermon. Five words. Now, here's the thing. Jonah's a prophet. He's a preacher. And if preachers are known for anything, they're known for being a tad long-winded. That's why you never ask a preacher to say grace at a wedding, right? Because, you know, the preacher goes on for 10 minutes, your food's cold, granny's fallen asleep, and, the, you know, you're just like, oh my goodness, will the preacher wrap up the prayer? And it's like this full sweep of biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation. He's quoted a thousand verses. And here's the thing, preachers are long-winded, prophets are long-winded, and Jonah comes and he preaches a five-word sermon. Five words. Jonah has literally just gone for the bare minimum, hasn't he? What's the least that I can do to be obedient to God technically without being obedient to God? He has gone for the bare minimum, just to tick the box. It's obedience, sure, but it's reluctant obedience. And some of you parents know exactly what I'm talking about. Just last night, we're sitting at the dinner table. One of our unnamed children had their feet on the table. And I said to them, can you take your feet off the table? At which point they hovered their feet millimeters, millimeters from the top of the table, right? How far is far enough? Like I, if, I'm, if I'm like two mil from the table, does that count as being obedient to the command to take your feet off the table? You know, I did 17 years of youth ministry before we planted Anchor Church. And every time, without fail, every Q&A, we ever did with teenagers, the question came up, you know, so, you know, I'm asking for a friend, but if you're in a relationship, how far is too far, right? And the answer to that question is, that's the wrong question. It's reluctant obedience. It's like, what is the bare minimum that I have to do in order to say, I've, I've been obedient, I've done what you said, God, but I've kind of done it on my terms. Reluctant obedience. We would never do that, would we? You and I? We would never walk in reluctant obedience. You know, God demands our whole life. He says, worship me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're like, God, you know, maybe if I could just give you two hours on Sunday, two hours Wednesday night, and I'll catch up the rest when I'm in my 40s. I'll make it up to you, right? God says to us, seek first my kingdom. Seek first my kingdom above everything else. And you're like, yeah, well, what does first really mean, God? Like perhaps my, my career, my social life, my family, and you're in the mix, right? Reluctant obedience. It's like, what, God, what is the bare minimum that is required of me until, so I can tick the box, say, yes, I've been obedient, God. Reluctant obedience. That's where Jonah's at. And it reflects a lot of his heart. And we're going to see next week, you, guys, you've got to come back for the conclusion of the story, right? Don't miss next Sunday. I know we always say that, right? But you cannot miss next Sunday. You've got, Jonah just doesn't make sense without the conclusion. Like most stories, funny, funny that. But here's the thing. Jonah comes with this reluctantly obedient sermon. 
40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 days, time frame, outcome, overthrown. Now that is the same word that is used to describe what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. Does anyone know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah? Annihilated, like they're completely destroyed. And so Jonah turns up to Nineveh and he says, 40 days and you're all going to burn. No reason why you're all going to burn. I mean, like, it's not the most theologically rounded sermon we've ever heard, is it? It's just, you're all going to burn in hell. You're going to die. God's coming for you. Now, what's interesting about this sermon is not so much about what's in it, but what's not in it, what it doesn't say. There's no mention of Yahweh, the God of Israel. There's no mention of why he's preaching judgment. There's no mention of hope. There's no good news. There's just, you're going to burn. You're going to be destroyed. 40 more days. This is a graceless sermon from a graceless preacher. Now, after the whole fish incident, you would expect a little more humility from Jonah, would you not? Just, you know, maybe even just 2% more humility would, would be nice. A graceless sermon from a graceless preacher. And in my opinion, it's the worst sermon in the entire Bible. Now, to be fair, my first sermon was a shocker. I, I preached my first sermon at 17 at the Christian group at lunchtime. I had literally just become a Christian and lived a fairly reckless life before that. And I'm not sure why they felt I was a suitable candidate to come and share the word of God at the lunchtime group. But anyway, I turned up with a great message about cockroaches and moths and how they both respond to light differently. And that was it. No Bible verses, no word of God, nothing in there. It was like the, the worst sermon you could ever preach. And thankfully, I had a youth pastor at the time who saw enough of a skerrick of potential in me. And he pulled me aside and he said, great sermon, but not a great sermon. It actually was terrible. And all, work, all messages need to be preached from the Bible. I was like, oh, really? I had no idea. I'd been a Christian like three weeks. But he gave me a second chance. He trained me. He showed me. You know, I remember a number of years ago, overhearing uh, a friend of mine share the good news of Jesus with someone who was working in, in, uh, in a place next to us. And um, overheard this conversation. And as I'm listening, I was just like, you know, when you're like, just box ticking all of the things you should never do when you, you know, share the good news with someone. They, they are literally just doing all of the Christianese you can think of. All of the, all of like the, the wordy things that you can imagine. They, they start off with like total depravity and then they get to like penal substitutionary atonement and imputed righteousness and eschatological hope. And I'm just like, my goodness, stop, please. And in my head, I'm thinking to myself, this per and in case you were wondering, yes, the person was theologically trained because like theologically trained people are often the worst. At That's why when we do Alpha, the best people to run Alpha aren't pastors because we talk too much and make it too complicated. So if you ever want to do Alpha, the qualification is you're just an ordinary Christian, right? That's it. That's it. But as I'm overhearing this conversation, I'm thinking to myself, this guy's never, he's blown it. He had one chance. He's blind. This guy has never, let alone come to church, he is never going to become a Christian. Which, gosh, you know, as you think back on that, I think, wow. Do, do I really think 
that the responsibility of moving someone from death to life rests on the clarity and the how well this person has done it. Because Jonah preaches a five-word terrible sermon. A five-word sermon. A judgy sermon. What do you expect at the end of it? Right? You, you remember, the Ninevites were known for their violence. The most brutal regime in the history of, of known history. Right? These guys perfected the art of human torture, of war. What's the expectation as the prophet of the Lord walks around the city of Nineveh and brings a word of judgment? This is what happened. Have a look at verse 5. The Ninevites pulled out their guns and shot Jonah. No, the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. And a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was like a, it's kind of like wearing goat's hair. It's itchy, it's scratchy, it's not particularly nice to wear, and it's a sign of mourning. So they put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached to the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Now, if that is not a picture of someone who is repentant, you see that happening all over the scriptures. People covering themselves with dust, wearing sackcloth. And then he does this. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone... Call urgently on the Lord. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Wow. I don't know what you were expecting, but you know, just imagine you're reading this for the first time and you're like, what? And you know how you know the repentance is real here from, from the Ninevites? is that they fast not just from food, but from drink, all of them. Right now, let's just be real for a second. We've been fasting every Monday, Tuesday for the last 10, 11 months. This is our like second last one for the year. Without a show of hands, how many of you guys have participated in fasting over the last couple of months, right? I, I know how many people come to the office on the Monday nights, right? There's a, there's a scary faithful few. Yes, thank you guys for being there. It is hard work to get a large body of people to fast. And here is, that. sorry, that wasn't just a, like a subtle stab, right? That, just, I'm just trying to say, right? I'm just trying to say it's hard work to get a whole bunch of people to fast. And they fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least, from the kids to the king, including the animals. Now, I don't know how you monitor that, right? It's like, how, how do you, the cows eat something like, 3% of their body weight every day, like 24 kilos of dry feed, right? How do, you, how do you prevent a cow? It's like, hey, stop. There's a five-word sermon. And the greatest revival recorded in the scriptures breaks out. 120,000 people, the entire city, from the greatest to the least, including the animals, corporate fasting, mourning, covered in sackcloth and dust because of a five-word sermon from a crooked preacher. Five words. What a reminder of the power of God, right? 
That's all it took. That is all it took. Five words. The power of God to save a city. And he uses a dud preacher and a bad sermon to achieve his purposes. Now, I don't know about you as I read that, but I think, man, what a relief. Isn't that a relief? How many of you think, well, God could never use me. I don't have my life sorted out. I don't have my last night sorted out. God could never use me to achieve his purposes. God could never use me as an agent of revival in his city. And Jonah has to be one of the most profound reminders in the entire Bible that God can still draw straight lines with a crooked stick. I mean, let's be fair. Almost everyone that God uses, other than his son, has got a colored history and a checkered past and a bunch of problems that they needed help with. Jonah is a reminder that God can still use half-hearted, judgy, dud sermons, not from a place of compassion, grace, and mercy. What a relief. What a hope. What hope we find here in Jonah chapter 3, that the, the fate of the city of Sydney in 2022 does not rest upon the eloquence of our words and the theological preciseness of our presentations, but on the power of a merciful and mighty God. Amen. This is also a reminder to us that revival is not something that we manufacture. Right? We do not stir up revival. Jonah did not tick all of the classic cues of how to turn a revival on when you get to a city, right? He didn't book out a giant stadium. He didn't get a worship band to pray, play the prayer pads, which guarantees an extra 3% conversion rate if you do that behind the altar call. He didn't do any of those things. This is a reminder for us that revival is not stirred up, but revival comes down. That God pours out his mercy. Jonah has to be one of the greatest parables of repentance that we see. The entire book, his life. You know, his, his life is a, is a living, walking parable of repentance. Because what does Jonah do? Jonah is heading in one direction. And then after an encounter with God, God turns him around and he begins to head in the other direction. That, that is a picture of repentance. And that is what happens to Nineveh. That is the contrast here. And at the sound of the word of the Lord, the Ninevites do just that. They turn from their violence. They turn from their wickedness and their anger. Have a look at what it says in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God relented and didn't send on them the destruction that he had threatened because God is a God of second chances. He's a God of second chances. He gives Jonah a second chance. That was the whole point of the fish. A second chance. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And that same God gives Nineveh a second chance. 
a second chance because God is slow to anger, abounding in love. He is patient. He does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. He longs for people to live lives of obedience. Now, now for, for those of you who uh, know any of your character of God, one of the things we know about God is what God does not change. And so you read a verse like this and you're like, oh, my, my theological brain is about to explode. Hang on a second. God changed his mind. He relented. And there's, uh, look, to be honest with you, there's a really tricky, tricky thing to try and answer. And there's all sorts of answers to this tension that we have here. And truth be told is, we just don't really know how to resolve the overlap between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity and how those two things interact. Right? There's a number of ways that we could try and resolve this problem. But here's the point. Here in Jonah, I think what's happening in Jonah is actually very obvious. God knew. God knew what he was going to do. He knew that he was going to forgive. Jonah knew. That's why if, if Jonah was going to like go to Nineveh, preach a judgy sermon, and God was going to smite them, and he would have gone. Right? He would have he would have he would have like hired the fastest horse that you could get and legged it to Nineveh, preached the sermon, and come back to Jerusalem with all the swagger in the world. Be like, yeah, guys, I just preached judgment. The city's destroyed. You thought Sodom and Gomorrah was bad. You should have seen Nineveh, right? He could have done that, but Jonah knew what God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In fact, that's what God promises in Jeremiah 18. If there is a city whom I have proclaimed judgment against and they relent and repent, I will turn from the judgment that is coming upon them. It's the character of God. And I think it's, it's obvious what is happening here in Jonah. Everyone knew what was going to happen other than the Ninevites. God is a God of patience, grace, Mercy. That is so clearly on display here in the book of Jonah. And if you want to know what moves the heart of God, you want to know what changes God's mind from sending punishment to relenting and showing mercy and grace, what moves the heart of God is a life of repentance, a soft conscience to His Word, a willingness to own our sin, to own our mistakes and not pretend before God that we have our lives all sorted. You know, you, you don't often hear the word repent in church anymore, do you? It's like an old-fashioned word. It has all of these negative connotations. And so in the, in the vein of trying to be, you know, seeker-sensitive, we just don't talk about things like judgment, repentance. And that's a real shame because repentance really is the very center and core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's the very heart of Christian formation. It's what it means to be a Christian. Repentance means to turn, to change your direction. Repentance is turning from your life, turning your life that's oriented around you and your plans and your commands and your purposes and your vision and turning around towards God's plans and God's purposes and God's commands and God's vision for you. There are always two competing visions for us. My vision and God's vision. And living a, a life of daily repentance is a life of constantly turning around saying, God, 
Yes, I want to go your way, not my way. It's not a one-time thing. This is an all-of-life thing. The Christian journey is a life of repentance, not a moment of repentance. Something we do every day, turning back to God, coming back to God. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, we all want progress. But if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn, walking back to the right road. And in that case, the person who turns back soonest is the most progressive. That's from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. We do that daily to recognize that I'm walking on the wrong road and I need to turn around and come back and walk on the path that God has called me to walk on. Turning around. You know, by all accounts, as we get to the end of the book of Jonah, we don't really know where Nineveh ended up. And chances are they only did a 90-degree turn. You see, repentance is not only just turning away from violence and wickedness, but also turning ourselves to the path of God. And it seems that Nineveh just went 90 degrees. They turned away from their wickedness, but did they become worshippers of Yahweh? Did they do what the sailors did and, and offered sacrifices to God? Chances, no. And yet, in the midst of all of that, God still gave Nineveh a second chance. A second chance. Because he's a God who is gracious and merciful. A God who is abounding in love. And a God who relents from sending disaster. You know, there's only one reason why God can offer a second chance to anyone. And to be fair... There's not a person in this room, myself included, who doesn't need a second chance, who couldn't do with a second chance, a fresh start. And there's one reason why God can do that. There's only one reason why the perfect, holy, righteous God can say to imperfect people like you and I, I'm going to give you a second chance. And that's because of Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life of obedience before the Father, never walked in disobedience. Jesus never had a moment where he had to go, oh, I'm going the wrong way. Let me go back God's way. His entire life, he walked in obedience to the Father's word. And it's on the basis of both the perfect life of Jesus and the sufficient death of Jesus that God can offer us a second chance. Jonah screams out at us, that God is a God of grace and mercy. And you know what? We live in a culture that doesn't really believe in second chances. You get one chance in our culture. One chance before we will cancel you. One mistake and you're a write-off. But God is a God of second chances. And I believe that there are people in this room who need to hear that message this morning. Some of you are drowning under the weight of your own shame. You would, you would identify as a follower of Jesus, but as you take stock of your life, you think, man, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that far from Jonah. 
And I want you to know this morning that God wants to offer you a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. See, there is no mess that is beyond God's ability to, to restore and to fix. There is no one who has out the grace of God. There is no city that is so dark that God cannot enter in with His redeeming grace. And for some of you here this morning, you know that you have been running from God your whole life. And today you want to accept the second chance that God has to offer. And that is, if that is you, I encourage you to throw yourself upon the mercy and grace of God. He is willing to forgive. And today, God wants to give you a fresh start. He promises by the blood of Jesus to wash us clean. Whiter than snow is the picture from Psalm 51. Because God is a God of second chances. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I was thinking about what we do in, in this meal. And it has so many rich nuances. It's like a diamond. You can look at it from different angles and just see the beauty of the gospel in fresh ways every time we participate in this meal together. So this morning, as you head to the back, the, the tables, the stations are at the back with grape juice and, and some bread. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I want you to do this with the, the acute reminder that the sacrifice of Jesus is what offers us a second chance. A moment to have another go. To come back to that moment. And to remember 1 John 1 verse 9 that says, If we confess our sins, He is what? He's not angry. He's not, how dare you? He's not lift your game. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. To forgive us and cleanse us. And so as you head to the back this morning, church, if you love Jesus... This meal is for you. If you want to repent this morning, turn your life around, then make this meal the moment that you do that. To come to God with open hands to receive His grace and His mercy. So I'm going to invite the band out as we transition to worship and to the Lord's Supper together. Church, I'm going to invite you to stand. Let's pray. Let's respond with gracious hearts this morning because we worship a gracious God, sorry, respond with thankful hearts this morning because we worship a gracious, good, forgiving, patient, loving Father. Let's pray together. Father God, we confess that so often we live our lives by the script of our own vision. We think we know better. We think that our plans and our purposes lead to flourishing. But if we're honest, God, Time and time again, you have shown us that that is a dead end. And so this morning, Father, we want to repent. We want to turn our lives around. And instead of walking in our plans and our purposes and our ways, God, we declare this morning we want to walk your way and be obedient to your commands and walk in your purposes for our life. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that offers us all a second chance. And so this morning, God, as we head to the back and participate in the Lord's Supper, minister to us, remind us of grace, remind us of your patience. I want to pray in particular for those this morning, God, who are struggling with the shame that is hanging over them. God, would you lift that? 
Help them to see the beauty of the gospel with fresh eyes this morning. Set us free. We ask this in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.